Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. 804-454-1366. Good morning. I'm attorney Katie Dean with the law firm of Locke and Quinn, and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's law talk radio show. The show brings an exciting and varied array of legal topics to listeners throughout the central Virginia and especially the greater Richmond area. On Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m., the show features true life stories and cases, legal tips, and information from experts and attorneys. The law touches nearly every aspect of daily life, and the show brings both humorous and entertaining stories along with helpful tips, including tips on access to legal services, which is something that not everyone can afford. This morning, you can watch a Facebook Live video of today's show by going to the Phelan Petty Law Firm page on Facebook. Later on, you can also visit my law firm's website, www.lockquinn.com, in order to download videos and podcasts of all of our episodes. Today, we are discussing products liability cases, particularly involving exploding e-cigarette batteries. And I am joined by Mike Phelan, who's a partner at the law firm of Phelan Petty in Richmond and knows quite a bit about this topic. Good morning. Good morning, Katie. It's great to be with you this morning. Um, And as a reminder, if you have any questions, you can call into the show at 804-454-1366. So getting started, Mike, what kind of cases do you handle at Phelan Petty? I handle uh, all of our product liability cases. Um, we also do uh, other, other catastrophic injury cases involving truck accidents. Uh, mm-hmm. My partner handles some medical malpractice cases. Um, and so basically we, we represent individuals uh, in, in injury cases. Got it. Um, so let's talk specifically about a type of case you were handling, exploding e-cigarette batteries. Can you tell us about these types of cases? Yes. Um, th- these are, these are, um, are usually very sad cases. You know, people are, are trying to quit smoking cigarettes mm-hmm. and, and they're using, uh, they're vaping in order to do so. And which is, you know, which is important to them and, 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 and a great goal for them to have. What they don't often know is that the batteries that power these uh, vaporizers mm-hmm. uh, are mostly built, made in China, uh, and and there's been a rash of explosions of these batteries, either in the device, loose in the person's pocket, or in the charge, charging machine, because the batteries are cheaply made. Um, they, they are, um, excuse me. So they're, they're def- they have defects, they have internal defects, mm-hmm. and it creates sort of a thermal uh, runaway that leads to an explosion. Yeah, if you go to YouTube and just Google e-cigarette explosions, you'll see some pretty vivid examples of somebody having what looks like a road flare go off in their pocket or in their face while they're vaping. Yeah, which is can be very dangerous, I imagine. Um, so what sorts of things... Um, cause these batteries to explode like this and cause these injuries? Well, what what the experts who are putting these things under CT scanners and studying them are finding is are multiple, multiple things, but typically there are internal defects in the manufacturing process in China. And so what you have is you have a, you have a separator uh, that is what keeps the, um, the 
the battery from short-circuiting. It, it separates the positive from the negative electrodes in this battery. And then it's sort of wrapped up um, like a cigar and put into a, a metal casing. And so if there are metal uh, debris or other, or other defects in, or, you know, in the, in the um, uh, separator that can pierce the membrane of the separator, you get this um, short-circuiting going on internally when the battery's not even activated. And it creates uh, uh, rising temperatures that can get as high as 900 degrees. Then that emits gases that build up pressure inside this metal tube into which it's all been stuffed. And it really turns into a pipe bomb is what wow. happens. Since sounds like he really put a lot of effort into figuring out or understanding the science behind yes. what causes this to happen. Um, so if somebody has one of these and it does, you know, explode or, you know, they get one of these flares, what should they do in those situations? Well, one thing I've learned from a personal safety standpoint is if you, for example, if, this, if you have a, a, a battery explode in your pocket and your pants are on fire and your skin is on fire, the first thing you need to do is get into some cold water, jump into the bathtub because burning skin is like um, smoldering charcoal. It just keeps burning unless you put it out. And the people who've had the most successful burn recoveries are the ones who immediately got icy water onto it, put it out, and then maybe put a, a cold pack or frozen vegetables on it and then went to the emergency room. Those are the people who have been able to avoid skin graft surgery, but they still have terrible third-degree third burns that cause long-term problems. And then, of course, the worst cases I've seen are the devices that have exploded while in the person's mouth and, you know, blew up their face. Yeah, I'm just thinking like where people carry these and where you might have it. You know, if it's going to explode, it seems like it's always going to be like on your person. Right, so right. it's, you know, going to cause going to cause a lot of injury. I think that with the exception of a cell phone, this is the electric device that uh, people most carry on their body. Yeah. So close to their body. And, um, you know, the, the amazing thing is that there are a lot of cases being reported excuse me, being reported around the country where the person has uh, the device in one pocket and a spare battery in the other pocket with nothing in that pocket but the spare battery. And the spare battery blows up. Oh, geez. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you're, they're typically not just carrying the device, but they usually carry a backup battery in them. So they have double the danger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Got the battery in the device and then the spare battery. Um, so if somebody has one of these explode on them, um, what should they do if they're not able or they don't think to keep the remaining parts of the product and they've had this, this battery explosion? Well, ideally they do keep the exploded <laughs> battery so that it can be tested. If okay. they don't do that, then they at a minimum have to prove they purchased it from a certain retailer. Mm -hmm. They without proof of purchase and the device itself or, or the exploded battery, there really is no case. Um, so the, so it's important to, you know, think if, if this happens, keep the exploded battery and search for your receipts, your credit card receipts, whatever, mm -hmm. to prove that you bought it from whatever shop. 
Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking, you know, every time I leave a store, I usually just toss the receipt, right. but this might be one of those products that people would want to be aware of from the get-go when they're buying it to make sure to keep that keep that proof of purchase just That's in right. case they have That's a right. need to have a legal claim later. And these things are not inexpensive. So most, most of the time there's a credit card charge involved, mm-hmm. which can, can be the proof of purchase. Yeah. And sometimes with Amazon and online ordering now, you just have an email record of everything, which might be nice in a, right. in a case like this that you have such good records. Um, so if someone has, um, you know, an e-cigarette explode, they've saved their proof of purchase, they're able to save, you know, the remains of the battery so that it can be tested and they, um, you know, come to someone like you, um, they, they, they think they have a legal case. Who, who are they making a claim against? You said the batteries are made in China, but I'm assuming maybe some of the different parts are made all over. Is this, who are, who are they looking to sue in these cases? Well, I'm, I'm a, I have, have met with attorneys around the country who handle these cases. Um, Some are bringing the cases against the manufacturer of the battery, Mm -hmm. as well as the U.S. distributors who take the batteries from the Chinese manufacturer and sell them to local retailers, and then, of course, the local retailer. The problem with suing the Chinese manufacturer is it's extremely expensive. have to go under the Hague Convention just to get service. Chinese companies don't always honor um, the Hague Convention, and you're chasing down some Chinese company. Uh, I happen to know of an expert who has investigated one of the battery manufacturers pretty heavily and actually went to their location that they list on their website, and there was nothing there. Oh, wow. Um, So what I think is happening is... Some of these companies in China that claim to manufacture these batteries are not even manufacturing batteries. What they're doing is they're getting a hold of reject batteries from reputable battery, battery manufacturers who've made a battery, they've tested it, they've decided it's substandard, it doesn't meet their mm-hmm. quality standards, and they reject it. They either just try to, try to recycle it or they sell it to other companies and what these other companies do if they get their hands on these batteries either legally or illegally um, they just rewrap them with their own labels they've been rejected as being you know not up to standards Mm -hmm. but now they're being sold and marketed as two standard batteries so um, it's it's really difficult to chase down a Chinese company especially if they're not being uh, um, honest about right. Sounds how, like they're already they the comfortable with right. not really following. Right. So their first defense is going to be, well, how, how can you prove it's even our battery? There are, mm-hmm. there are all, all these counterfeit batteries out there. Whereas if um, under Virginia law, you have a warranty claim against the seller of a product, if the product was unreasonably dangerous for its intended use or a reasonably foreseeable use. So you buy a battery that the, that the um, shop sells you specifically for the purpose of, you know, charging your vaporizer. Mm-hmm. That battery is not supposed to explode like a Roman candle in your face or in your pocket. Right. Um, that's unreasonably dangerous. Mm-hmm. And so I think the, the better strategy is to bring the claim against the U.S. Um, retailer mm-hmm. who sold you the defective battery, and, and if you can figure out who their distributor is, then you're not spending a fortune chasing down a Chinese company. If the retailer and the distributor want to bring the Chinese manufacturer into the case, you know, that's their 
they can spend that. (laughs) Go chase them down and and spend that money. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, when you're talking about reasonably foreseeable use, I mean, I imagine with these, you know, e-cigarettes, obviously it's it's foreseeable to these distributors and to these retailers that this is something people are going to have on their person and near their face. And um, so having these exploding batteries is, uh, I would imagine, that piece of it is from a legal perspective, uh, maybe an easier bar to clear than maybe some of the other right. pieces of it. Right. right. Um, what, the, what the retailers and distributors will say in these cases is, um, you know, read the warnings. And if, and if you're not following the warnings, then that's their defense. And, and the warnings typically say things like, don't use the battery if it's been damaged. Uh, don't let the battery get overheated. Don't, don't, you know, don't put the battery in your purse or pocket if, if there's metal in there, like coins and mm-hmm. keys, because that possibly could cause a short circuit. So I would suggest that anyone using these devices read the warnings. The warnings often are written by somebody whose first language is Chinese, and they're not great, mm-hmm. um, and they're, not, they're really not very effective, and they don't cover the situation that I was talking about where got this battery in your pocket which is a cloth pocket there's mm-hmm. no metal you have no keys no change and it still explodes right there's no warning that covers that situation that's just warning may spontaneously combust yeah. <laughs> right okay are there any other types of defenses that are raised in these types of cases you talked a little bit about the you know chinese manufacturers saying how can you prove it's ours and you know and the you know read the warnings um, any other types of defenses that the plaintiffs attorneys have to be on the lookout for or Prepared well, to overcome. you know, the batteries are supposed to be uh, charged with a, in a compatible charger. So you have to look at what charger was being used. Was, okay. it, was it overcharged? Um, that, that's one of the defenses they try to come up with. Um, if, if the battery is not the right amperage for the device, you know, it's working too hard. In mm-hmm. other words, the device should, should have a 30-volt battery and the person's using a 20-volt battery. It's working too hard. Okay. It's being stressed. It may heat up. Those are, those are defenses that I, that I typically see. Um, but really, for the, for the majority of the cases I've seen, it's, it's one or two uh, battery manufacturers. Even if I say manufacturers, they may be these rewraps that right. I've been talking about. But... One of them is called MXJO, and those are all 30, they are all, they're all advertised as 30-volt batteries. And so they should be, you know, they should be compatible with most standard vaporizers. Mm-hmm. And typically the person who, who goes to a vape shop is buying the vaporizer or the mod together with the charger that's recommended by the store, together right. with the batteries that are recommended by the store. right. And expecting that it's all just going right. to work the way that right. it should. When, when you say overcharging, is that like leaving it plugged in too long or? Certain chargers will automatically turn off okay. once, once the battery is charged, fully charged. Um, those, are, those are the good chargers. Mm-hmm. I think there are probably some that you can just plug in and charge the thing forever until you turn it, take the battery out of it or right. turn it off. And, and so you can overcharge a battery. I'm just thinking about all of my electronic devices at right. home that I just leave plugged into right. the wall all day. And it's not something I would think of as being, you know, dangerous or, you know, no, negligent on my part. But it's probably good for people to know 
not to do that. You know, the difference between the battery and your cell phone, which is probably the one mm-hmm. you're thinking yeah. of that you charge overnight, and this kind of battery is, they're both lithium-ion batteries, mm-hmm. both very powerful. They both are rechargeable. But the battery in your cell phone is flat, a flat square wrapped in a plastic pouch. Mm-hmm. This battery is, like I said, rolled up into a metal cylinder and enclosed where gas can build up at when it heats up and really turn it into a pipe bomb. So when, when your cell phone battery overheats, there's very little risk of an explosion. They have caught on fire. I mean, mm-hmm. that's why they don't allow them onto airplanes. Right. right? They've caught on fire, but they don't explode. Yeah. That's, I'm just <laughs> thinking about all my batteries now and <laughs> wondering if I should go read go read my warnings. This is scary stuff. So um, when you when someone comes into your office and they have a, you know, I had an e-cigarette, the battery exploded, you know, do I have a case? What are the criteria that, um, that has to be met for you um, in order for you to handle that type of case? Well, the case, most product liability cases require ex- expert testimony. Okay. And, you know, we're talking about a, somebody with an engineering background and mm-hmm. a subspecialty in stutter, studying um, lithium-ion batteries. Mm-hmm. So, so it can be expensive. So if, if the battery exploded and nothing was damaged, the pers- mm-hmm. person wasn't injured, I usually tell them, you know, you should deal with this through the store and, and get a credit. Mm-hmm. You don't want to spend a lot of money on a case where you're not going to you're not going to recover costs enough are going to, to outweigh your damages. Your costs, yeah. Right. Uh, so that's number one. I mean, you know, just pra- practically speaking, mm-hmm. you have to the, you have to weigh the costs against the potential recovery. Number two is they need to be able to prove where they purchased it. Mm-hmm. And um, I probably wouldn't take a case where they didn't have the exploded battery because you have to prove that the the product was defective. Mm-hmm. So the burden is on the plaintiff, the person bringing the lawsuit, to prove that the product was defective. If you don't have the product, it's awfully tough to prove that it was defective. Yeah, and if you don't know who sold it to them right. and you don't know who to sue, especially, as you said, that's who you need to go after is the... So I will typically ask the client for everything. The, mm-hmm. the proof of purchase, the the vaping device itself, even though that's not what caused the explosion in many cases, and the charger, and the backup batteries that they bought. I want to have all of that looked mm-hmm. at by the expert. Um, I, say, I say the vaping device is, is often not what exploded, but in some cases, it is an in-device explosion because the battery's in the device when it explodes. Right. And some of these devices are made like, like a pen, mm-hmm. you know, like an ink pen. And they actually, they're made to look like a pen, and they actually have built-in batteries. So it's the whole device that gets charged up, uh, not just the battery in a battery charger. It's still the battery that is the cause of the thermal runaway and, and explosion, but right. some of them, they're built-in. All right. So you're looking for, they've got to have the battery, they've got to have the proof of purchase, and then anything else that came with it. Do these batteries usually come in packs where there's multiples, so you might have one that is still intact that you could compare to the one that exploded, or is it more single? Well, the cases I've seen, the batteries come in single packs, okay. like a cardboard box. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to have 
if they have the box, I'd like to get the box and mm -hmm. whatever paper inserts came with the box to see what warnings came with the battery. Right. The, the warnings have sort of evolved just over the last couple of years, mm -hmm. even from the same um, um, manufacturers. Yeah, I imagine that that's probably in response to, <laughs> right. you know, some of these things going wrong and right. you know, the company. The, the um, Food and Drug Administration has now gotten involved and there's a task force studying this. Usually, the, well, the, the early studies surrounding e-cigarettes had to do with nicotine content and, you know, health mm -hmm. risks. Um, and I don't have any of these cases. I'm not pursuing any of those cases, but I understand that there are some uh, lung injury concerns uh, because it's it's really, a, they take a liquid, uh, what they call juice, mm -hmm. and they they heat it up in an atomizer in these devices. And, and so you're basically sucking vapor into your right. lungs. And depending on the content of what's in this liquid, um, the FDA is concerned about health, health yeah, risks. But it's not really a healthy alternative right, um, right. to smoking like people might think it is. Um, that's, that's really interesting. So when you, you talked about these injuries, you said it has to be bad enough that it's gonna, their damages are going to you know, outweigh the, the cost of bringing these types of case. How bad are some of these injuries that you've seen? Well, the worst, I mean, I've, I have heard about death cases where, the, oh, wow. where there was an explosion in the face that mm -hmm. caused enough um, trauma internally that the person died. I've seen, I've seen photographs of um, facial explosion cases where teeth are knocked out, lips, lips are burned off, eyes are burned, that kind of thing. Those are the worst cases I've seen. The majority of the cases I've seen are the battery in pocket mm -hmm. case where the person is, you know, just sitting somewhere and all of a sudden flames are coming out of their pocket. Or if, if you look on YouTube, the person who walks into the convenience store and gets caught on the security camera, all of a sudden there's just, you know, there's just like a Roman candle going off in the pocket. Yeah, Those cases typically involve bad burns to the thigh. Sometimes it spreads cross to the other thigh and mm -hmm. burns the genitals. Um, yes. And they typically will burn their hands trying to put the fire out. Mm -hmm. And they're bad. Those are bad cases. Um, you know, the third degree burns, if mm -hmm. they don't get treated quickly and properly, they're going to need a skin graft, which is basically a whole nother, you know, trauma to another, to the other leg, the opposite leg. And then a lifetime of caring for these burn wounds. Yeah, which can be, uh, I would imagine, quite a bit. Is this something people should be taking pictures of, you know, if they are injured, if they're able to when it happens? Well, the the early photographs are grotesque. And, yes, they should capture how that looks. It's going to look that way for a long time. All right. And then the, and then the healing process, the, the, the wounds fade over time, but they're never completely gone. Yeah. Well, this is certainly an interesting topic, and I look forward to hearing a little bit more about it. We are going to take a quick break for just a few minutes here. Remember, you can call into the show if you have questions at 804-454-1366. And we will be back with Mike Phelan to talk a little bit more about e-cigarettes and exploding batteries right after the break. You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. 
Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Now, back to Raising the Bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366. Welcome back to Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show. I am Katie Dean with the law firm of Locke & Quinn, and I'm here talking to Mike Phelan, a partner at Phelan Petty. Um, and we have been talking about e-cigarettes and exploding batteries, um, which is a type of products liability case, um, and which is the type of case that uh, Mike handles. So, um, Mike, you've talked a lot um, in the first half of the show about e-cigarettes, exploding batteries. Um, what other types of product defect cases um, do you handle and does your firm handle? Well, we, we, heard, we handle just about any kind of individual product liability case. Um, and, and in addition, we've been involved in some of the national... Mm-hmm. pharmaceutical and medical device cases. Um, some One of the more interesting individual cases that I handled a year or two ago involved a, um, a firearm accessory. And it was in- interesting because my client was a real firearm enthusiast. Mm-hmm. In fact, he owned a gun shop. Oh. Um, and he had, you know, he was skeet shooting with a, mm-hmm. with a, high-powered weapon, and he took a, a foregrip from his inventory that was, again, involved. Well, I'll get, I'll get to the Chinese <laughs> angle, but the packaging on it said made in the USA, big flags all over it, mm-hmm. uh, with guarantees of the strongest possible materials known to man. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it was a grip that goes under the gun on what's called a Picatinny rail, that you screw into the rail, and it gives the the, the operator of the gun another, uh, a, a, you know, more sturdy uh, point to hold on to rather than holding the barrel of the gun. It's kind of like a handle. But, right. <laughs> sort of. Right. Yeah. That would Not that particularly be, familiar with guns, no, so that's what I would call no, it. No, that would be an easier uh, <laughs> thing to say. Um, so this was, a, this was a shotgun, so it had to be cocked in order to fire it. And the very first time he cocked this gun, shot his target, the foregrip broke. So the next time he cocked the gun and it went forward, the foregrip slid off the rail and he shot, you know, a part of his hand off. Oh my gosh. Um, Turns out this was not made in the USA. It was made at some place in China and the company that sold it uh, couldn't even couldn't even identify where in China it was made, what it was made out of, or what process was used. Um, but the, but their representations all over the packaging were made from the strongest polymers known to man. Right. Made in the USA. Um, so that so that was an interesting case, and it was um, you know it was it was interesting because from the standpoint of my client former military, knows more about guns than the average person. Mm-hmm. And even he couldn't see from just looking at this product that it was some cheap Chinese-made right. 
um, device that was going to malfunction on him. And this wasn't like a user error case because, as you said, this was somebody who knew what he was doing right. and right. Um, would have been, you know, using it safely and expecting it to work as it as it should work. So when you have a case like that where they have, you know, like you said, the flags all over it and the made in the USA and the strongest polymers, is part of your angle that you're looking at in a lawsuit just the misrepresentations on the packaging or is it going at it just more from the warranty safety? <clears throat> yes, yes. In that case, one of the warranty claims was breach of an express warranty that they, they made representations mm-hmm. that were not true and that um, the person who bought it wouldn't, wouldn't have bought it if they had known these representations were false. Right. Um, particularly him because he was going to resell it to his, his customers in his shop. Oh, wow. So then he would have been on yeah. the, as the right. retailer and right. he's looking at being on the other side of right. one of these. He thought it was made in the USA. Mm-hmm. Wow. So when you get cases like this, you know, you mentioned um, sometimes they're, you know, larger cases and, you know, you've worked with other attorneys in other states. How do you, how do you coordinate with attorneys in other states if that's part of, part of the case? Well, it, it often is part of the case, particularly in the, um, what, what they call the mass tort cases. Mm-hmm. So the pharmaceutical and medical device cases. Those are cases involving the same product um, that, that has harmed thousands of people. So the, the product is the same, but the people who are hiring the attorneys are all over the country. Mm-hmm. And so a lot, of, a lot of times those cases will be consolidated if they're in federal court mm-hmm. into one court, um, which is called a multi-district litigation. Uh, the, the, there's a judicial panel of federal, of federal judges who can set up a multi-district litigation, they call it an MDL, and send a certain litigation to that MDL, in which case uh, the, the rules in the MDL typically will allow out-of-state attorneys to practice in that MDL. The MDL is designed to, to make consistent discovery rulings for every case. So one judge is making the same discovery rulings for every case, which is fairer to the manufacturers as well because mm-hmm. they don't want to be having to deal with 50 different rulings across the country. Right, and fighting different battles yeah. in right. different courts. Right, and, and then in the past, the MDL system sort of evolved into the judges setting up um, trials coming out of this MDL in front of those judges call them bellwether trials, and then as the bellwether trials reveal the strengths and weaknesses of both sides, the judges are, are um, encouraging a global settlement of all of the cases. Uh, the, the MDL was originally set up so that once the discovery uh, portion of the process was finished, all the cases would then go back to their um, home federal districts mm-hmm. for trial. It's, it's starting to come full circle, and more and more, I think, judges are um, not forcing or, or playing as strong a role in global settlements, and cases are being remanded back to their home districts. And so, in a roundabout, long way of answering your question, when that happens, and, you know, you've got cases now being sent back to districts all over the country, you have to work with attorneys from that state. Mm-hmm. I'm not licensed in every state in the country. Right. A lot it's, of bar exams. <laughs> right. So, you know, if I have a case that gets remanded to Illinois or Indiana, mm-hmm. I'm having to co-counsel with 
uh, Illinois or Indiana attorney to, to, to try that case. And I do that um, nationally. Yeah, so it probably helps to have a good network. I imagine you do have a pretty good network of, of people that you can coordinate with just because these cases do tend to be so so national um, a lot of the time. It, it does help. Uh, I've joined national trial lawyer mm-hmm. organizations, and there's a lot of information sharing and, um, it, you know, a lot, of, a lot of contacts made. So I, there, are, there are attorneys in just about every state that I, I could call on if I needed to associate. And, and, and likewise, if they've got a case in Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, they, they, they can call on me to be their co-counsel, their local counsel in the case. Right. So you mentioned that, you know, this uh, consolidating these cases, especially for discovery issues, you know, is helpful for, you know, you mentioned defendants because you're getting the same ruling. As a plaintiff's attorney, do you have a, you know, thought on, you know, this system being good, bad, pros, cons for the for the plaintiffs bringing these cases? I think, I think <laughs> it's kind there's... kind of a philosophical no, question. Yeah, no, I think, <laughs> I think overall good um, because the the... The, the typical plaintiff who has, let's say, a defective hip implant can't afford to do the discovery of Johnson & Johnson or whatever right. the name of the manufacturer is yeah, these big companies to prove have. their one individual case. Um, the MDL forms a committee of plaintiff's lawyers that conduct the discovery, which can be worldwide. I mean, sometimes mm-hmm. the Experts are in another country. Sometimes the testing was done in another country. It can be very, very expensive. And right. so those costs are spread out over all of the thousands of plaintiffs who are in the MDL. So from that perspective, it is, it is a very fair and efficient way for plaintiffs to get a just result. Mm-hmm. Where I've seen MDLs um, maybe go go badly for plaintiffs is where depend you know depending on the the attorneys who actually wind up being in charge of the litigation because they're on the steering committees etc mm-hmm. you know maybe they negotiate a global settlement that isn't close to what a trial result would be for this plaintiff mm-hmm. maybe they'd be better off going to trial those are all decisions that the the the, the injured person needs to make with their original attorney mm-hmm. uh, and not necessarily have this settlement jammed down their throats by some committee. Right. Uh, on the whole, I would have to say, though, that the committees do outstanding work and uh, the results have been have been efficient and fair uh, in the cases I've seen. Yeah. But this is why you want to make sure you're consulting with a qualified attorney who really regularly practices in this area and can advise you on all these, you know, pretty complex issues early on in the case. Um, So when you get these just massive cases involving, you know, mass tort litigation, plaintiffs all across the country, um, you know, we're looking at a product that's just been defective across the board. So you have a lot of people who have been injured. How do you, I mean, how do you even start assessing a case like that um, on that scale? Well, you want to, you know, you want to get a hold of the the FDA documents if they're available Mm -hmm. to know, uh, what the manufacturer knew or should have known. You want to you want to know how many people are potentially affected by this, and um, and just do you know a lot of medical research, mm-hmm. a lot of scientific research goes into figuring out whether these are the kind of cases that would 
uh, turn into an MDL someday, as opposed to just a single, mm-hmm. you know, product liability case. Yeah. Um, so we've talked a little bit about experts, um, you know, in the e-cigarette cases, you talked about needing, you know, someone who really specializes in these lithium ion batteries. Um, in some of these other cases, what sort of experts are, are you looking at? Um, well, it depends on the, on the product. Mm-hmm. Um, the, to me, the best expert is somebody who was in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- those experts are really hard to find. Um, they typically don't have a financial interest in uh, testifying against the industry, the manufacturers. Mm -hmm. But if you can find a really, you know, knowledgeable uh, industry insider expert, that's the best person to have. Uh, In the the, uh, firearm accessory case that I told you about, Mm -hmm. the expert I had was a firearms industry expert. He was just appalled by this Chinese, you know, piece of garbage that mm-hmm. was being put out on the market and, and affixed to good quality guns. Um, he was willing to help. Mm-hmm. You, know, you just have to search these people out and get the right. What, what you don't want is the person who claims to be an expert in a million different things and is really an expert in nothing. Right. Jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, but I mean, what, what you're saying about having someone in the industry, I mean, I imagine that that comes across very credible to a jury as well, because like you said, this is someone with no financial interest other than just having worked in this industry and like you said, being appalled when something is not done right in that industry because they're, you know, want it to have integrity and they, you know, know it well enough to know when something's not being done right, like in the firearms case. Right. So if you can find them, I imagine that would be what you would look for. Um, what about timing in, in cases like these? I imagine, you know, the bigger they get, um, these can really drag on for a long time, especially when you're needing to do all this research and find these experts and, you know, assess the scope of the case and everything like that. Well, the, well, the first timing issue, the most cr- crucial one, is the, the time deadline for getting a suit file mm-hmm. for, for the plaintiff, for the client. And that's called the statute of limitations. And, the, and that is different in almost every state. So if you're going to do a, a national practice, you have to have a current list of every state's statute of limitations and understand when they start to run. They don't all start to run uh, at the same time. Virginia has um, probably one of the most, uh, uh, one of the harshest statutes of limitations in the country. There are some exceptions that have been carved out, but generally speaking, it is two years from the date your cause of action accrues, and then then the definition of cause of action accruing in a case like this is when were you injured? And for a like for an exposure case, for a toxic exposure case, a person may not know they've been injured for years. Right. By the time they figure it out. If, they, if someone could go back and look at uh, their medical records or, or scans or x-rays and say, well, you know what, it was never diagnosed, but you were actually injured 10 years ago by this product, mm-hmm. in Virginia, they'd be out of luck. Now, So the General Assembly has, in bits and pieces, tried to fix that. They, in the asbestos cases, mm-hmm. um, commonly... The defense was go go get the employer's uh, doctor 
uh, records and look at chest x-rays and, oh, look, there 30 years ago, there was a little speck there. They should have sued two years after that. Well, they didn't know about it until 30 years right. later when it manifested as mesothelioma mm -hmm. or something like that, or asbestosis. So the General Assembly made an exception for asbestos and made it two years from the date you reasonably discovered it or should have discovered it. Um, they didn't have they didn't have any other exceptions for years. Then they made an exception for breast implants. And then there were no exceptions for years. And then recently, within the last three years, they made an exception for implanted medical devices. And so if you have an implanted medical device like a hip mm -hmm. or some of these filters that they put, they call them IVC filters, they put into your vena cava to prevent clots from going up, um, then the statute of limitations in Virginia is two years from the date you discover that you've been injured by this or reason, reasonably should have known. Um, but still, it's still one, just one more carve out. There are other medical devices that don't get implanted into your body that could hurt you. And right. there's no exception for that. And I would imagine sometimes it's possible to get injured and you know, you're injured, but you maybe don't know that the product was defective and right. that's what caused the injury right. until right. much further down the line. And so you, it sounds like in Virginia, we're not very forgiving to those types that's of... That's right. And particularly if the, if the product involves some sort of a toxic exposure, then all mm -hmm. of a sudden you're, you're sick five years later. You just don't, you don't know why until some physician figures it out and says, oh, you use this. Yeah. That's a known cause of what you have now. Uh, you know, my differential diagnosis is that's what caused your current illness. Well, it's too late unless it falls into one of these exceptions in, in Virginia. Other states are not so harsh. Other states, everything has a discovery rule mm -hmm. of two years or three years or whatever from the date you discover the cause. Right. So once you, you know, you're, you're within the statute of limitations, you get your, you know, suit filed in time, um, what sort of timing are our plaintiffs looking at? from that point on, just in terms of litigation and how long these things take to play out? If it's an individual case and it's filed in the federal courts in Virginia, it's, the federal courts in Virginia are known as the rocket docket. Yes. I tell my clients it might be, you know, one to two years. Mm -hmm. um, state court, pretty much about the same okay. uh, in Virginia, maybe a little longer because mm -hmm. the... We have a judge shortage now in Virginia, mm -hmm. state courts, and so the dockets are backing up. Um, in some of these MDLs that I talked about or in other states, I tell my clients, you know, hope for three years, but it could be longer. And then if it happens in two years, they're, you know, they're, they're happy. Right. But, but it, it drags on. Right. But, and that can be tough for people who are seriously yeah, injured yeah, and needing yeah. to recover. I mean, I've had clients who said, I'm not going to be alive when the case is over and they're right mm -hmm. unfortunately yeah that's that is really tough so any i mean obviously these cases are dealing with in some cases very serious injuries any horror stories or just you know anything that stands out in your mind as just the really bad case i don't know if it's a horror story as much as it's a case that will never leave my mind um uh i i represented years ago at the sweet little Down syndrome child who um, had his eye shot out by a um, paintball gun that was designed to be really a, you know, a, a, a 
It was designed to be as close to a military weapon as possible. And unfortunately, in the design of this weapon uh, or paintball gun, when every time you cocked the gun, it advanced the ball into the barrel, including the last time that you cocked the gun. And so the older brother thought that he was finished using it, mm-hmm. emptied out the hopper that had all the barrels and it turned the gun upside down and emptied out, you know, whatever balls were still in, in the, uh, in the gun and didn't realize there's still one in the barrel, unscrewed the barrel, put everything away in its box. And the next time he took it out, he dry fired it and shot his little brother's eye out. Oh my goodness. He didn't know the ball was in the barrel. I think there were, there were all kinds of in. Warnings in the industry not to let that happen. Other manufacturers of these paintball guns ha- had designed that hazard out and, mm-hmm. and warned about it. This particular manufacturer just t- took the position that too bad. You know, they're not, they knew about it, but they didn't think it was an, an issue. And um, the, the reason that case has always just stuck with me is because of the child. He was just such a great kid. Mm-hmm. Years later, I was coaching... Special Olympics basketball, and uh, I, I was standing there on the sideline, and I felt somebody just grab a hold of my finger, and I looked down, and it's this boy who had oh. been playing on another team and walked over to yeah. just to thank me, you know, for helping him out yeah. years earlier. So, not a horror story, but you know, just just tragedy right. because he 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 couldn't deal with being blind on one side as well as everybody else mm-hmm. um, because he already, his judgment and his perception was, was already affected mm-hmm. by his disability. And so, you know, he was bumping into walls, not turning corners properly because he had no depth perception. And just, you know, just, he was the last person who, who could afford to have that loss of vision. Yeah. Well, at least you're able to, it sounds like, get him yeah. get him a recovery in that case, which, of course, you know, even when you're in these cases, we know sometimes just getting the recovery, obviously the best scenario is it didn't happen in the first place and, you know, right. they're not having right. to live with this injury. Um, any uh, any favorite types of cases or, um, I don't know, fun is the right. right. <laughs> I really, term, ju- I just really enjoy the cases that require me to learn and the engineering of the case or the science of the case. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it, every case is different when you do products liability. And um, I find that, you know, being, there's no substitute for being as prepared as the experts are on the topic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't always happen. You know, some, they're experts for a reason, but right. I try. And, um, you know, I, I just like to figure out how things work and understand it. So I like some of these mechanical cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just, I just believe that the, the folks who have been injured by these products um, have, a, have a constitutional Seventh Amendment right to a trial by jury. Mm-hmm. I also think that um, it's not fair to the manufacturers who are doing it right, mm-hmm. that there are cheaters out there. Right. And, and that um, uh, this this system weeds out the cheaters in many events. Uh, right. These Chinese manufacturers that are dumping dangerous products onto the market are 
selling them at prices that American companies can't compete with. Well, the reason they're able to do that is they're making junk, and I, that's just not fair. So I, I do think there's a place in society for holding companies accountable for cheating. Yeah, so you kind of have the both both goals in a case like this, which is, you know, on the individual level, you want to get a recovery for the person who's been unfairly injured, but also I guess this is more of a systemic keeping the industry honest um, type of work that you get to do in these in these cases, most of the most of the attorneys I know who, who do product liability cases are, um, are are all are very involved in product safety programs, which if they were fully effective would put the attorney out of business, right? right? But that's that's their goal. I mean, they, I know plenty of attorneys who who are former. I actually have some friends who are former truck drivers mm-hmm. who are now attorneys. Know more about you know, the safety of operating tractor-trailer trucks than most people. Mm-hmm. And they're constantly advocating for safety improvements in these trucks. Um, and and I think it's because they believe that, you know, the goal is to prevent the, the injury from happening in yeah. the first place. Prevent the need for an attorney, right. even right. if it, right. <laughs> we can do other we types of personal injury cases. Yeah, there's right. lots, of, lots of areas of law, but yeah, if we can reduce the types of injuries. Are there any uh, products in particular that you're just having done this type of work, you know, that you are very averse to, or you kind of warn your friends and family, you know, stay away from this, or has it made you hypervigilant about certain things? I'll, I'll tell you, my my clients who have um, had these batteries explode mm-hmm. in their pockets, uh, they seem to be pretty hypervigilant about educating other vapors. Mm-hmm. And to the point where they'll, you know, drop their pants and say, look, this is what can happen to you. Wow. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't keep a, uh, a lithium-ion battery in my pocket ever. Um, there are certain things that I just wouldn't leave on, like these um, space heaters, and especially the kind that just plug into the wall and they're just hanging from your outlet, or the ones that have kerosene in them. Oh, wow. the, I mean, those scare me. I wouldn't. I would not. I don't let my children, you know, use those things mm-hmm. uh, when uh, unattended. It's good to know. I have a space heater in my office right under my desk, so I'll probably go and plug it when I when I get back to the office. That is um, that is some good advice. Uh, any any last thoughts? We're about to wrap up here, but anything else you'd want to let listeners know? Well, you you know you mentioned that the owner of my office building has a policy that no one's allowed to have a space heater. Okay, well, that sounds like I that's think maybe their a insurance good company made that policy. <laughs> sounds like a good one. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, and join us again next Wednesday at 9 a.m. for Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show. Have a good day.